Hello, welcome to the Democracy Group and our end of the year best of 2023 series. From now until the end of the year, we'll be showcasing some of our network's favorite episodes from across our different shows. If you'd like to hear more episodes just like this, then head over to democracygroup.org. We hope that you have a wonderful end of your year and enjoy today's episode. I'm Will Hitchcock. And I'm Siva Vadianathan. And from the Now Hall Auditorium at the University of Virginia, this is Democracy in Danger. Will, I, I want to say it's been such an honor and a joy to share the production of this show with our students this semester. It really has. And, you know, we have asked them to tackle some very difficult subjects, some very grim topics. Yeah. And, you know, that is not an easy task, especially after we've seen violence in our own community. Yeah. I mean, it, it shocks us to the core, of course, when um, gun violence penetrates our university bubble. But the truth is it's going on around us all the time. It impacts America's most vulnerable communities. And in this class, we've been thinking a lot about how to empower communities to figure out a path forward, uh, to grapple with the impact and the legacy of violence that surrounds us. Right. And throughout this semester, we've been positing violence versus democracy. Well, we've invited a guest today who has also been thinking along these lines, and he writes so incisively about the culture of violence, the politics of race, the history of this country, day in and day out for the New York Times. On the stage with us today is Jamel Bowie, a columnist and commentator. He's also, by the way, an alumnus of the University of Virginia. Jamel, good to have you today and with us on Democracy in Danger. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Jamel, you, uh, you were born and raised in Virginia Beach. You graduated from this fine institution in 2009. Tragically, you were a major in political and social thought rather than history, though your <laughs> or, or columns your columns are so <laughs> historical in the way you think and the way you write about our current predicament. Um, this is a room full of students, and many of them are thinking anxiously about the fact they're going to graduate in just a few weeks and wondering what the future holds. Just tell us, you know, what's the path between your time at UVA and wh what you're doing now? Sure. Um reading and writing and thinking deeply about text is like kind of just what I do on a weekly basis for the times now. It's like there's clear continuity between the two things, but that is like, that kind of smooths out 10 or so years because when I graduated from UVA, I had no idea what I was going to do. Uh, I just sort of did odd jobs around Charlottesville for a year and uh, studied for the LSAT, sort of like thought I'd go <laughs> Every along. student here is like, right. check, check, yeah. I'm doing that, I'm doing that, I'm doing that. But I, I've always been an avid reader of magazines and newspapers, and I've always been very interested in politics. And a magazine that I read pretty frequently, The American Prospect, had a writing fellowship open uh, that spring, the spring of 2010. And so my thinking was... Let me apply for this writing fellowship and see if I get the job. If I get the job, I'll move to DC, I'll work for a magazine, that seems kind of cool, um, and we'll see where things go from there. And I got the job, I got the fellowship, uh, and moved to DC and started a job in journalism. And it wasn't really until you know they renewed the fellowship for a second year, the following year, where I thought to myself, I guess this is just what I'm going to do for, for a while. And it was only then that I started to really think seriously. And even it took years for this to develop, but like, what exactly am I trying to do 
with all of this? Am I just trying to comment on politics? Am I just trying to analyze elections? Or am I trying to do something broader or more interesting? Do I have myself a mission? And what is that mission? And developing that was not just a matter of like, you know, introspection and like a priori thought on a bathtub or something. Um, it was a product of experience mm -hmm. of reporting, uh, not just on elections, but on events like the events in Ferguson, the events in Baltimore, on the Charleston shooting, kind of doing all these things over the course of several years that um, helped clarify what exactly I wanted to do. And I should add to this being part of a community of journalists as well, community of black journalists specifically. And figuring out over time, okay, I have this interest in history, I have this interest in social science, I have this interest in political theory. I, I think I can kind of utilize those things and leverage those things to think about American politics in maybe a broader way than is typical. Mm -hmm. um, and we'll see how that works out. Well, you are looking at it broadly and, and historically, right? So, so many of the things you've written in the past couple of years have, have been deep takes on American political history, but also American political thought. Can you, can you tell us your sense of what is peculiar about American democracy, the development of American democracy? You know, how do you see this long tradition and where are we in the, in the route toward democracy? I think, I think we tend in the public, in the mainstream, to have like a na very narrow idea of what American democracy is mm -hmm. and what it entails. Uh, and I think one thing that's useful about, say, reading about the American Revolution, reading deeply about it, is getting a better sense of like the sense of possibilities that existed during and that in the immediate wake of the revolution for what American democracy, what the American Republic might be. Um, part of the utility of sort of paying attention to the dissident traditions in American political thinking is like looking at the different conceptions across the nation's history of what the U.S. democracy is, what freedom means, what liberty means, what all these things mean. Mm. And the thing that I'm specifically interested in and that I kind of return to again and again, and that really doesn't form my perspective against the, the typical view, is not treating something like our history of racial oppression, you know, domination, slavery, expropriation, all these things as um, an original sin. Mm -hmm or something or a flaw mm. in the American project, but more thinking about them and treating them as actually like constitutive of what Americans have thought about freedom, which to me is more interesting, right? Like it's more interesting mm. to sort of say, you know, for Jacksonian Americans, there was no real contradiction between universal suffrage for white men and native expropriation. Mm -hmm. That's a fact, there was no contradiction for them. And so why wasn't there a contradiction for them? How does that inform their thinking about US democracy, which they, they called it democracy, and given that the Jacksonian tradition would be so influential in shaping American political life going forward, what does that mean for the rest of us? And those are the kinds of things that get me animated and that I think are, are useful for the present to uh, ask yourself, you know, the people, people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th did not think of themselves as being against democracy. They thought of themselves as actually sort of like trying to protect what they understood mm. as American democracy, as the American system. And so why? Like mm. what explains or what can help us understand that perspective? Right. Does it help to look at the fact that slaveholding Virginians uh, you know, promoted and forged this idea of democracy and equality, right. right? I mean, to us, that seems absurd. And yet, as you said, it's 
consistent in their minds, right? Let me follow up uh, with something that that you've been writing about uh, quite a lot, which is this notion about how each generation has to, or has, in fact, reinvented and reimposed a new set of racial hierarchies. It's not like they're the same of Jacksonian America that we're living in now, but they're still there. They get retooled, reconceptualized. And one of the things that you've been spending a lot of time on is police violence and brutality as a mechanism to do that. What is the arc of this particular moment is what I'm getting at, yeah. Um, I think like a lot of people, especially anyone with sort of like at least like a, a pretty decent um, gloss of U.S. history, is sort of like, oh, yeah, well, you know, it's racism then and racism in the more immediate past and racism in the present. And it sort of all looks like a single continuous thing, um, what you might call it like a trans historical thing. It's a constant over time. And I think that's still a very common view. Um, I, I, I think that view is wrong. Um, I think it's wrong because it ignores the role of human action and contingency. And typically, I think when people say, I'm thinking like you're an historian, they're like, oh, you're just, you're referencing old stuff. But I actually think thinking like an historian is like taking seriously mm-hmm. both continuity over time, but also like contingency in time um, and human action in time. Taking seriously things like um, the end of chattel slavery, which there's, I think there's a tendency to say, well, there's nothing really meaningfully changed from 1865 to 1875 or whatever. But if you think of yourself as being a person who existed then, and you can kind of get this from just reading the recollections of the formerly enslaved, um, uh, for them in that moment, even if they were indebted to some landowner, it still mattered that no one could take their kids. Mm. Um, That was still a meaningful change, and they experience it as a meaningful change. And to begin to take that seriously and begin to take seriously the idea that, you know, what came after slavery wasn't slavery, what came after that, Jim Crow, wasn't the previous thing, and that these things are meaningfully different, then it does raise this question, like, well, what are, what, what is actually happening with the notion of race hierarchy or, like, the existence of it of a thing? How is it reproducing itself over time? Like, what are the things actually kind of reinscribing um, racial difference, racial oppression, these mm. sorts of things. And th- this is like not an original Jamel insight. Like, you know, you read Du Bois, you read, um, I mean, the whole suite of early 20th century Black American, like political observers and theorists, and they're all kind of talking about this because they're all kind of living through it. And so recognizing that someone long lived enough can basically like live through mm-hmm. changes in how these things operate does like, you know, cause you to say, well, what for my life, what I can see, how are things changing? How are they shifting? How are they not? Well, let's talk about the daily experience of democracy, the daily experience of being a citizen, the daily experience of interacting with one's government, with the state, right? So you've written that most middle-class residents of moderate affluent suburbs are likely to experience government in a way that affirms their sense of agency and political belonging. And you contrast that with those who have been excluded from the sort of structures of support that many of us take for granted. And we have to say like those people who live in affluent suburbs, for them, violence is often an abstraction, something to fear rather than something to dodge or experience or or directly suffer from, right? So is this merely a function of America's racial hierarchy or are there other dynamics and divisions at work in this observation? So I should say, I mean, I think that column is like ripping off of a wonderful essay by a, a former UVA scholar, Veshla Weaver, uh, called Police Are Our Government and Law Enforcement. It's for many Americans like the primary 
a window they would they interact with the state, which is not something you typically think of in those terms. You right. think of interacting with the state typically in a middle class way with like the DMV or your kid's school. But for a lot of Americans, it is the cops. That is the state. The other thing I'll say is that part of this line of thought was inspired by um, a journalist for The Guardian, uh, Moira Donegan, who writes quite a bit about how um, reproductive rights and reproductive freedom should be like thought about in terms of like personal dignity as well, and how when the state denies you full bodily autonomy, that is actually an assault on your dignity as an equal person, an equal citizen mm-hmm. in society. Um, so to answer your question, Siva, we exist in class society. That's mm-hmm. sort of like kind of one of the fundamental things that structures our lives, our, our relation to the means of production. But how we experience class society is different. It's yeah. different for everyone. And things like race and gender, citizenship, immigration status, all these things kind of like structure how you experience various forms of inequality in a society. So critically, uh, I recently drove through part of West Virginia, going to do something at Penn State. Um, If you live in a poor West Virginia town, probably white, because West Virginia is one of the whitest states in the country, you may also have this very negative interaction with the state on part of your poverty. But the nature of it, because it's not racialized, it's going to be a little different. Not going to be good. I, I would not describe being oppressed by the state on the basis of your poverty as somehow being a privilege. Right. It still sucks. It's just different than the experience of a poor black person in, say, Petersburg, Virginia, who is also going to experience that. Experience it maybe in more violent ways. And maybe you could describe the absence of direct violence as being a kind of privilege. That I think might be fair. Mm. But it's your identity or your your belonging to categories of identity that are going to structure your exposure to the kinds of inequality you both face as poor people. There's this old slogan, union slogan from the uh, 50s, um, black and white unite and fight. Great poster. But you got to ask yourself, well, why hasn't that ever really happened? Right? Like, why, why is it? that even when in close proximity, it's been this titanic struggle to build some sort of like labor solidarity between black and white workers. And the only way to answer that is just like think about, well, how does race structure the experience of inequality? How does race structure the experience of citizenship? Mm -hmm. Um, How do people develop attachments to their racial identity on the basis of like a recognition that it does tie into how you're treated? Even if you don't express it in these terms, if you recognize if you're a Detroit homeowner, suburban Detroit homeowner in the 1950s, if you recognize that right, my access to this, it has something to do with the fact that I'm white. How are you going to react at the possibility that someone who shares your class status maybe tries to move into your neighborhood? Understanding. Well, we've run that experiment yeah. and we know how they react. Yeah, we know how they right. react. Right, right. But it's important to try to like deepen one's analysis beyond, well, they're just racist. There's something more complicated going here. Not that excuse this racism, but better helps you understand what is producing the reaction and how you might, if you're so inclined, like circumvent it. I want to come back to the question of policing in particular, because it's something you've been spending a lot of time on and something we're all dealing with. And basically your your assertion or one of the frameworks that you've been interrogating is that policing is fundamentally not democratic. <laughs> right. I think that sounds like a pretty persuasive view. But what are, what are the, implica- the policy implications, yeah. the community implications? Well, you know, defund the police, for example, it became a an epithet. At first it became a, a slogan, then it became an epithet in our politics. So that's it's already become highly you know, messed up by our partisan demagoguery. But there are communities that want democracy and policing both. Yeah. 
what, how do we proceed? What, um, what do we need to know before we sort of try to solve that question? Yeah, I was going to say, because I feel like I do have to like make that case, at least in short, like <laughs> right. policing is not democratic. Um, by way of analogy, right? Like, so in the United States, the military is under civilian control. What that means in practice is that the president says, I would like you to do X, Y, or Z. The military has to say, well, yes, sir. They can offer their opinions. They can say, well, I think this might be better. Or would you want to consider this? But if the president says, no, I've thought about all of that. You're going to do this. The military has to say, all right, we're going to do what we've been told. Like the military has a distinct lack of autonomy in regards to what it can practically do for good reason, right? It's, it's generally been very bad when militaries have more autonomy than they should. But it's like the opposite for American policing. Police departments across the country are essentially outside of democratic control. A mayor or a city council says, I want you to do this. You are public servants accountable to us, and we would like you to do X, Y, or Z. And the police say, oh, we don't want to. Or, as is maybe happening in Chicago right now, they say, well, we're just gonna, like, not going to do our jobs, and then hopefully we can pressure the voters, uh, because they'll be upset about crime, into removing the people we don't like. In a lot of places, police are so powerful in this regard, that they basically like captured city budgets. I think after the um, Memphis shooting a couple months ago, it came out that like a third of the Memphis budget was going to the police department, right? And, and even with school shootings, the answer is always, well, let's put more police right. in the it was, schools. It was just like shovel more money yeah. into the police department. I think this is a problem because like police departments don't actually have an active interest in trying to reduce crime rates, right? Because if crime rates go down and policing is effective, then you pull back resources because there are better things to spend your money on than cops. There just are. And so this gives police departments a lot of leverage. And they use that leverage basically to sort of like wall themselves off from any accountability. Police officers do terrible things. Investigations are all entirely internal. There's administrative stuff, but there's no sort of public accountability. And I, I think that... The, <laughs> If you think that American policing has to be reformed, I kind of think that's the object of your reform. It's like not training, it's not bias, it's not any of that stuff. It's how actually do you bring police departments back under democratic control, or if they never really existed there, how do you impose that? And that raises a bunch of like tricky questions that I think are very uncomfortable that no one really wants to deal with. Maybe what you do is you just have to dismantle the whole thing, you say, we're going to dissolve this police department and start afresh, start something new. Maybe you say the actual structure of how we do policing, these sort of like very aggressive quasi-military operations aren't what we want precisely because of the kinds of values they can inculcate in the people who are involved in them. So maybe we take a different approach entirely. Maybe you do, in fact, reallocate budgets, reforming police departments in a way that makes them less prone to doing terrible things, or that even makes them more effective in the first place. Charlottesville, I think the budget for the police department is like $18 million. And it's not like itemized, so no one <laughs> no, 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 no really knows that. where it's going. Uh, and it's like, well, if like you're a homeowner or if you pay a restaurant tax, that restaurant tax goes to the city. At the very least, yeah, you should know exactly what the police department is spending on. But I'll say real quick, we did learn that they were spending money on jet skis. Well, for all the water around the- uh, For all the water on Charlottesville, right? <laughs> water criminals, you gotta stop them. So democratic accountability implies that there's some distillation of public opinion and some lever that the public can use to change policy or at least direct our leaders to 
cohere to public opinion. So let's get to some student questions. Um, shall we go to the middle there? Hi, um, I'm Emma. I'm a second year rising political and social thought major. Um, I was just wondering if you think that there are other American institutions that you think fail to operate under a democracy besides the police that contribute to these systemic inequities you were describing. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot. <laughs> there's a lot. Uh, you know, I'm tempted to say something like, oh, well, the Senate or the court or the Supreme Court. But I'm going to say the American workplace. Um, the American workplace is a profoundly undemocratic place. In your civic life as a citizen, right, you go to a ballot box, you cast a ballot for the person or the people who are going to presumably have some say over what happens in your life. You go into a workplace and your boss tells you you have to do that and you have to say, okay, or they fire you. And in the United States, which has a very low level of union density, there isn't really much in the way of like collective say in the conditions of the workplace. And from one perspective, this is like, oh, fine, whatever, you're going to get paid. But from another perspective, I think it's very odd that the United States, the world's oldest democracy, the world's greatest democracy, for most people in most of their lives, the place where they're going to spend a huge portion of their life, there's no real democracy. And that seems to me to be a real problem. And I think it does shape the kinds of inequalities in our society because it kind of acculturates people to a hierarchical relationship to each other, which is in real tension with the idea of what a democracy is supposed so to be. So they live under autocracy eight hours a day at work, go home to patriarchy. Right. And, and there's time in the car in between, maybe. Uh, let's get to another question. <laughs> Hi there, I'm Colin. I'm a second year. I'm curious, going back to this police point, you know, across mainly the South, there's lots of sheriff's offices that are law enforcement, and those sheriffs are democratically elected uh, cycle after cycle. And when you suggest that part of how we can achieve democratic, you know, control or accountability is dismantling the system, if in the one instance of law enforcement and the police, and the sheriffs are slightly different, being democratically elected shows abuse of power, what does that mean for the future of this idea of dismantling the system to make it better? Um, I think that, you know, part of my diagnosis critique of American law enforcement is that it's a structural problem, um, institutional problem, but also a cultural one. And the two things are connected to each other. A sheriff's office, which is connected to this broader law enforcement world, is going to be taking in the same kinds of cultural messages about the thin blue line and, and all these things regarding police impunity that a city police department is going to take. And so even if a sheriff is democratically elected, that sheriff is still operating within this like larger cultural context within American law enforcement. You know, electing a sheriff is obviously not like a solution that's going to fix everything. You still have to deal with the actual department's relationship to the public and the actual department's relationship to the people it's tasked with policing. So for example, Democratically elected sheriff really just means in practice that, like, do you like the guy who's going to be the public face of the place? What it doesn't mean is the community has a say in whether that sheriff's department reaches out to the Department of Defense and asks for a tank, mm -hmm. right? Maybe you would want a say in that. Maybe it might be better to have a say in that than in who's going to be the face of the department. Um, and that's my argument, that democratic accountability when it comes to policing similar to democratic participation in the workplace, has to be attached 
to the actual structure of what a police department does, to its actual decision making. That doesn't necessarily mean that the public has to have a say in who walks what patrol, but it might mean before a police department announces a new set of patrols, it goes to the community and says, this is what we're thinking of doing. And this is this is where we want your input. Right. Let's get one more student question and then we'll uh, we'll wrap it up. Uh, hello, Jamil. Um, my name is Preston. I'm a fourth year political and social thought major, double majored in history. And uh, we just finished our PST conference last Saturday. And during the conference, I was up on the panel and Dr. Angel Adams Parham asked me this question about the system of white supremacy in American democracy. And I'm going to pose the same question to you. So if um, the American body politic, American democracy is analogized as a body, um, there are three analogy she posed. First is it's on its deathbed, it's in hospice care. Um, the second analogy is that it has leukemia. In order to resolve it, you're going to need a very painful bone marrow transplant, and it's going to be a difficult process. And then the third is it's uh, a cancer with occasional flare-ups and remissions, but over time it possibly can be resolved with usual cancer care. Um, which of these three analogies do you think you adhere to, and why do you adhere to this analogy? Okay, so I have 30 seconds to end this. <laughs> yeah, pretty grim. <laughs> uh, it's very grim. Uh, I, would, I would take the last one. American democracy is basically cancer-ridden, but it's treatable. Uh, having known, you know, having had family members go through cancer treatment, like chemotherapy and radiation treatment, it's very intensive. It requires, in the case of radiation treatment, essentially uh, destroying your immune system and building a new one back up again. And that is sort of how I see the state of American democracy. I said at the start that I think American democracy is a broader, more expansive thing. I think American democracy is not necessarily reduced to the set of institutions we have in the Constitution. I don't think American democracy is necessarily reduced to the particular federal structure we have. I don't think American democracy uh, can be reduced to simply our set of elections or whatever. It's a, it's a big, expansive thing. And I think that to you might say, realize um, the best parts of it is going to take like intensive change in just the nature and structure of this country. But I, I do think it is feasible. I think it's doable. And I think that in part because of history, that one thing American history is actually very... <laughs> illuminating on is how massive, unprecedented things happen when people least expect them. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll end there. We, we bring you down and then we maybe just show you a little glimmer of hope. Well, Jamel Bowie is an essayist for The New York Times and an analyst for CBS. Previously, he worked at Slate as chief political correspondent. He's based right here in Charlottesville. Thank you. Well, that's a wrap for this episode of Democracy in Danger. It's the last of our live recordings from UVA's Now Hall. But we have more coming your way this season on the crisis in Israel and Palestine. The latest attacks have killed at least three Palestinians, bringing the death toll to 27 in this recent escalation. With your help, we've hit 325,000 listens. Thank you. Visit our webpage, dendanger.org. There's a form to sign up for our newsletter and much more on each episode. Keep the love coming, people. You can find us on Twitter, at DND Podcast. That's at D-I-N-D Podcast. Democracy in Danger is produced by Robert Armengol and Rebecca Barry. Ellie Bashkow engineers the show. 
Our interns are Ava Kretzinger-Walters, Ellis Nolan, and B. Webster. Support comes from the University of Virginia's College of Arts and Sciences. The show is a project of UVA's Karst Institute of Democracy. We belong to the Democracy Group Podcast Network, and we're distributed by the Virginia Audio Collective of WTJU Radio in Charlottesville. I'm Siva Vadianathan. And I'm Will Hitchcock, and we'll see you soon. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.